Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth and Education podcast, where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co. Hi, welcome to episode four of the LKM Co. Youth and Education podcast. This episode was so much fun to record because it was a what if kind of episode. I was joined by George Dewebliss, who's one of my LKM co-colleagues, and we discuss what would happen if you had a chip in your brain that gave you all the knowledge that you ever needed to know. What are the educational implications of it? George talks about a research paper or a lecture that he attended where this was discussed. So that's the first half of it. And the second half, we discuss something interesting that I came across, which is the science of flow. I guess it can be described as total immersion and just how we can cultivate those learning experiences where time flies by and students are totally and utterly immersed and just want to learn more and more. So I hope you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed recording it. Let's get stuck in. Let's get geeking. LKM co-believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now? Right, George, we're going to talk today about a couple of things. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be talking about flow um, and you're going to be talking about epistemology. Is that right? First off, can you tell me what is it? What is epistemology? Mm. Um, So epistemology in general is kind of a theory of knowledge. Um, I suppose you could call it a branch of philosophy. Um, And what I'm really going to talk about is is neuromedia and extended cognition. So that's applying epistemology to to some of the more futuristic modern technology that um, may not be as far away as we think at the moment. What is neuromedia? So the definition of neuromedia is information processing technology that is seamlessly integrated with our onboard cognitive processes. So it's the idea that it's not just having technology that we use, it's having technology that we use without even having to think about it. Can you give some kind of examples? Because I'm thinking some funky matrix thing. Yeah, so so there's kind of two ways it could happen. Um, One is the cyborg route. So that's where we have a chip implanted into our brains. The other is the kind of matrix minority report route where we ourselves are embedded into high-tech adaptive environments. I'm using the language from uh, the literature here. What does that mean to the everyday man or woman in the classroom, streets, wherever? Well, it means like the matrix. So um, I suppose some sort of... uh, scenario where where we're embedded within some virtual reality world um, that's enabled by technology um, and it all sounds like it's it's very far into the future um, but I went to a talk recently by Duncan Pritchard who's a professor of philosophy at Edinburgh University um, and he was actually speaking to us from California where he's been visiting some of the big tech companies so IBM Microsoft people like that um, and what they're saying those tech companies is that this technology either having chips in our head or being kind of plugged in some virtual reality world, they're not that far away. 
Yeah, I'm trying to work out if I'm excited or scared. Yeah. I mean, he made the point that um, he raised, he, he's got some concerns and he raised these with some of these guys at the, at the tech companies. And I say guys, apparently they were mostly guys. Mostly guys. Um, so <laughs> apologies. Um, the striking thing was that they are not concerned in the slightest. All they are thinking about is how can we develop this technology? And when he raises questions about some of the, the ethical implications, um, they're kind of just saying, no, it'll be okay. What are the potential ethical implications of this? Well, if I, if I start, I mean, obviously, around education, there's, there's lots of implications. Let's start looking at, at some of the implications for education and then think ethically where we might be concerned. So, um, Duncan Pritchard reckons we're going to have pretty much all the factual knowledge in the world at our fingertips. And in fact, even before our fingertips, because we're not even going to have to think about this stuff or, or consciously go and find this stuff. It's just going to be there like any other memory that you or I have. Um, so he thinks this is going to make a range of skills become redundant. Um, he gives examples like navigational skills, um, memory, maths, linguistics, a lot of things that um, we had to do with our brain, he thinks are just going to be done by technology using this chip or whatever. Um, and some of the ethical concerns that he raises are there's enormous potential for misinformation and propaganda to be spread rapidly if you manage to hack into someone's chip, like someone's just recently hacked into the NHS, for example. Um, you can spread all sorts of information into people, and that is actually... What, 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 what do you mean by that? So what kind of information into people? Well, if... if I mean... Um, there's been quite a lot of controversy recently about um, fake news and, and this kind of stuff and Google search algorithms and how you can very quickly end up um, with lots of Google search results that tell you, um, for example, the Holocaust never happened um, if, if certain sites have been sponsored by uh, certain groups. Um, now, if we're effectively Google searching to retrieve memories, then that sort of behaviour, that, that, that sort of manipulation of, of search results then starts effectively controlling people's minds. We're not controlling just what's on the internet, we're controlling what's inside people's heads, people's ability to, to think. So, I mean, it, yeah, it doesn't take a huge leap of imagination to think if this sort of technology was possible, if there was some sort of state that had a desire to manipulate their citizens... I don't think you need a chip in your head to, to have enough knowledge of history to... to <laughs> no, the state would definitely do that kind of thing. To be aware, yeah. Mm. All this means we need to radically rethink how and what we're teaching our students. Now, I say could because there is a school of thought that all these fears around technology changing the way we think, uh, there's a school of thought that says that's unfounded. So, obviously, Daisy Christodoulou, um, she wrote in Seven, Seven Myths About Education that... One of those myths is this idea that it's the 21st century, we don't need to teach any knowledge, we just need to teach skills. She says that's not true. Um, and, and there is a point to be made there, because these sorts of fears about, about machines and things like that taking over learning, they've been around since the 50s. I mean, there's an amazing quote from uh, the Crowther Report, so that was published in 1959, um, and it's all about how education needs to make us at home, or make young people at home, in a world of machines. Well, we're kind of talking about the same thing, however many years later, what, mm. 70 years later. Um, 
but it hasn't really materialised. What do you think about it? So, you know, shortly before we recorded this, I was saying to you about we're quite at home with technology now. Um, I think quite an ancient or old technology is books that is knowledge transfer um, or knowledge storage in some respect that you can retrieve. Um, people didn't suddenly think you didn't have to learn things because it's in a textbook. That would seem like an outlandish thing to say. Um, whereas in essence, we're kind of saying the same thing, um, but obviously there are slight, slight differences. So I was wondering, you know, what do you think about, firstly, what excites you about this particular um, neuro, what are we call it? Neuromedia. Neuromedia. Um, that you think is new or different? And secondly, how do you think it's different from what already exists? I think the real difference here is this idea of extended cognition. So um, the fact that it's seamlessly integrated rather than with a book, yes, the information is stored there, but you've got to go and make an effort somehow to go and get that information. Likewise with the internet, the information is all there, at the, at, you, know, you can find it with a Google search, but there's still some sort of effort needed. There's, there's still you in, engaging and interacting with an external thing um, before you can retrieve that knowledge. I think what, what Pritchard is saying is different about neuromedia is that there isn't that distinction between internal and external. That knowledge from the internet is in your head like it's a memory, like there's no there's no process where you have to go and find it how would schools look because okay so as you were talking the first thing i thought was okay i'm thinking of neo in the matrix and yeah. um so he had to still be programmed with jujitsu i think was the first thing that we see him learning um but then i started to think oh what about if it's something like brave new world where actually as soon as a kid's born they start to be programmed what would you do um would it be, would we still keep the same ages that we have now? So at five, you suddenly learn all the stuff that a five-year-old to a ten-year-old is supposed to learn? Or would they be uploaded at certain times? If you did that, then how would school look? I mean, I'm asking lots of different questions, but what would that... To take it to its logical conclusion, which sounds outlandish at this point, um, but 20 years ago, being able to navigate something on your phone and talk to somebody face-to-face like you can in Star Trek would have sounded outlandish. So to take that to its logical conclusion, how would education then look? Well, I think, I think we have to be careful about um, w- thinking about what the logical conclusions are. Um, Illogical conclusion, then. <laughs> yeah, um, because I think, I think the issue with, with what Pritchard is saying is um, just being careful about what we mean by knowledge. So if knowledge was just a range of facts, if it was what was the date of the... When, when did the Second World War start, or who was president of Chile in 1952, whatever, um, then yes, you would be able to program people to just go and retrieve those kind of facts um, whenever they, need, they needed to. But actually, knowledge is a whole lot more than that. It's a whole lot more complicated. Um, and I think one of the arguments um, that people would make against Pritchard, who's saying we won't need to learn any knowledge because it's all going to be there, Um, as part of our extended cognition. Um, One of the arguments would be to say, well, yes, having those facts is one thing, but really the ability to reason with those facts and the ability to understand those facts um, is really based on much more than than just having them. It's based on um, being able to link them together. It's being able to 
work out which ones are more important than others. Now Pritchard comes back against this. He says um, that the purpose of education in this age where we could have all this factual information embedded within our brain, um, he says rather than teaching facts, what, what education should now be aiming to do is develop what he calls intellectual virtues. Mm, tell me more about that. Yeah, so um, he, he gives some examples of intellectual virtues. They're based on um, him being a philosopher, they're based on Aristotle. Um, but it's things like conscientiousness, um, love of truth, some element of reflectiveness in their learning. So he argues that a teacher's role is not to just transmit the knowledge, it's to um, develop those intellectual virtues so that students can access all of the knowledge that's available from technology um, and, and use them in the right way, the kind of way that we think um, is, is what education is all about. It's interesting because reading um, your notes before this, the thing that struck me was that actually carrying on from that, different things would start to be prized. So you might, at the moment, say, for example, maths and science teachers are at a premium. However, um, going to the general way that many people were taught maths or sciences is very fact-based, whereas what might start to be more prized is drama teachers, for example, because, yeah, you might have particular knowledge, but you still need to understand, you still need to be uh, taught how to be creative in a way or how to facilitate things, and it might change the most, the more dominant modes of teaching particular subjects, um, or else whole types of teachers will make themselves redundant in a way. Yeah, and I think this, this comes back to um, a lot of Daisy's arguments, which say um, that there is, a, there is a, a school of thought that there's no such thing as, as some of these intellectual virtues, so creativity might be one, um, although whether we call it a virtue or a skill, I mean... Who that, knows? Yeah, it all, it all gets a little bit complicated, but um, that, that, that school of thought argues that really the ability to be creative, the ability to, to uh, have a love of truth, which kind of implies that you understand what truth is, that all comes from having a broad enough base of knowledge and being able to link it together so that you can um, develop reasons. So um, I've just been reading about someone else, uh, McDowell, who says um, we have to think about two things, kind of the world of natural laws, so why things, one, uh, why things might affect another. That's the kind of stuff that the chip in your brain could give you enough facts to say, well, I've got this world of natural laws. But what makes us human is to be able to say, well, actually, is that correct? Am I justified in, in believing that? Um, and that's what he calls the space of reasons. And I think um, maybe Duncan Pritchard's view of this, this kind of matrix-like world of education, it kind of misses the fact that we really need to develop the space of reasons in students, not just equip them with enough facts so that they can work out the laws. Yeah, it's true actually, because as you were talking, I was thinking there's an infinite space for teachers who ask their children why. You, you can't get that from a computer program. Um, it's more the, and it, this goes beyond people saying, okay, you need to be, be able to apply things as well, because in essence, you could have an infinite number of simulations that applied facts to things and then did that. But to actually question, is this true? 
or to question why that happens. That's something that you cannot, we cannot currently program, and I doubt we ever will be able to because that's what makes us human, in a way. And it's always going to be difficult to get that from a Google search, right? Yeah. Because really, it takes your own ability to ask why and weigh up the judgments um, to ascertain which is the right answer that you get. Um, and I asked, I asked Duncan Pritchard the question. Um, if a student has this chip in their brain, which means they can think via the internet almost, if someone asks them what, what was the cause of the First World War, are they going to be able to answer it? How are they going to distinguish? I mean, they might find out lots of stuff about Franz Ferdinand and the German Empire. But how do they marry it all together? What, yeah, what does that mean to them? Um, so anyway, I mean, I mean, he talks about intellectual virtues. He says, even in this brave new world, and it is kind of a brave new world scenario, um, he says teachers aren't going to be redundant, um, but he does, need, he, he does stress that he thinks we need to think about what the role of teachers is in this world of technology um, if they're not going to become irrelevant. And I think that's a conversation that we all need to have. Yeah, very much so. It's actually fascinating. I'm looking at it, it's really, really interesting. Um, and I was also left with my notes saying, what is education for? Um, and it, it kind of says, okay, if you presuppose that we automatically, kids already have knowledge, then what is education for? And that's actually a fascinating question to ask. Um, thanks for bringing that up, George. That's really interesting. Thank you. Good. And you, um, you drew my attention to something uh, last week to do with flow psychology. Um, so I had a quick look at this. Flow seems to be total immersion. Could you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, so I came across... Um, it's quite a well-known work. Uh, I don't know how you pronun- pronounce the gentleman's surname. His first name is Mihaly, and I think it's Shizek Mihaly. I'm not entirely sure, OK? But um, he wrote a seminal work called Flow, which was about um, basically the pursuit of happiness in a way. And I came across it. I've known about it for some time. I keep meaning to read it, but I didn't get around to it. And then somebody I follow on Twitter who's a PE teacher, um, his name on Twitter is Sporticus, so Alex, um, quite often puts out what he's reading. And we have similar taste in books, so he he mentioned it maybe a few months ago, and I put it on my list, and I I finally ordered it. And I read it, and it's fantastic. Um, I remember reading it and thinking, why, in education circles at the moment, it's quite fashionable to talk about Carol Dweck and so on. But I was surprised that not that many people talk about flow. Um, and I think it's because generally, you know, this was a PE teacher, so he was looking at it in terms of sport and the body. I think in general it's something that's quite well known for people who are more creative, but people don't necessarily apply it to education, which I found interesting, actually. I, I think that's an oversight. So could you give some examples of when we're in the flow? Yeah, OK, so flow is an interesting one. It's basically just a particular state of being, so... Um, it can be achieved in a variety of settings. So work, sports or exercise, hobbies. They go into sex and relationships in the book as well, um, solitary flow and uh, other things. So a kind of condensed version of what it is is a state of being fully absorbed in what you're doing. So your mind, body, soul, and the kind of state that you're in when... OK, so you cycle, right? When you go cycling on the however many mile route, and suddenly you're in Cambridge or wherever it is and three hours has gone by and you didn't even notice it. That state that you experience is flow. Yeah, there's a really interesting uh, description of that in a book by Edward Thomas called In Pursuit of Spring. 
he talks about it's about cycling um, it was written about 100 years ago and when you're cycling you're kind of seamlessly part of your bike so that would be flow when you're in that in that zone mm. and the reason why I'm interested in it is because I well the reason why I think that educators should be interested in it is twofold I mean so personally I was interested because I'm always interested in the kind of pursuit of a meaningful life so I changed my life quite a bit a couple of years ago and it's kind of the things that people think make them happy don't really make them happy like money doesn't make you happy all these things status don't doesn't really make you happy so what is it that makes you happy um, and that's kind of what I was originally looking at this book for, just for my own personal interest. Then when I started reading it, it I started to think, oh, what about those lessons where you, you teach kids and suddenly the time's completely disappeared? And they even say it, they're like, oh, that lesson went really quickly, miss, or um, that was really good today, can we do that again, please, miss? And when I first started my career, I used to think a very particular kind of lesson did that. So it was the more kind of bells and whist- whistles lesson. You know, I'd got all this equipment out, everything was cool, there were kids doing this, kids doing that, kids hanging from the ceiling, whatever it was. Um, but recently I've had that kind of lesson with what you wouldn't necessarily think of an especially exciting lesson. So, you know, bust out a few math equations, talk a bit, have a bit of a laugh with your class, whatever it is, and you're not doing anything that's especially exciting. It, to just look at it, it's your everyday math lesson, it's nothing exciting, but they got lost in it and they thoroughly enjoyed it and they've asked for more when in essence it was me maybe a couple of pens then with some whiteboards and then a textbook and a bit of chat so why is that why did that happen and I think it can be explained via flow but I guess it's something that doesn't just happen do you think you as a teacher have to build up towards that that state so build a love of the subject maybe how do you think you get to that position? That's a really interesting point. Um, yeah, so there are particular... What was interesting about the book is that he'd taken a variety... Of, I think he started off with people in a very particular field. So, for example, peak performance athletes or that kind of a thing. Um, and it's people where it's really clear they get into that kind of a state, so maybe climbers or something like that. Then he started to expand it to different people in different walks of life, describing different things. And they all had stuff in common. So, you know, whether it was your plumber who loved his job or um, I don't know like a mum who enjoyed spending time with her family or whatever it was people just going for a walk and enjoying things Um, and they all had these commonalities so he proposes that you can get it in almost anything if you know what those things are Um, and the things are so one is that the conditions for flow are a task can be you have to have a task that can be completed going back to your ozone point you're riding to a particular place that's your goal so you know where you're going um, the same thing like you know in my classroom the kids have you know we know that we're trying to learn how to solve simultaneous equations for example so it's something that can technically there is an end to this task um, there's space and time to concentrate on what's being done so you can't really get into a flow state if you're being bombarded with loads of things um, so I'm terrible when I'm working at home because I want to be in the conservatory I want to be away from everybody because I can't concentrate when my kids are coming to ask me random questions about things. You can't get into that flow state. And in the classroom, in the same way, it's, um, uh, like I, I sometimes will insist on silence. Like I'm not a teacher who needs it to be silent, but there are certain times where I will insist on it because kids need, to, they need time to think. Um, they need time to actually take a task on board to understand what it is and then to give it a go. And also I've noticed that there are some kids who don't do well with loads of noise. So I might, it might only be five, ten minutes, but it will be like, hey, this time is silent time the other time it's not but now it is to actually get into that state it's not possible to do so otherwise 
Um, there need to be clear goals. So I guess that fits into the fashion a while ago of like learning outcomes and so on. Um, so that it needs to be something you're going to achieve. So I don't know, I'm going to walk from here, like so at the moment we're in Hackney, I'm going to walk from Hackney to my friends in uh, like Old Street. And I'm going to get there within a certain time period. Or maybe in the class it's like, okay, first person to get to 10 questions. I don't know, whatever it is. Or just the fact that by the end of today's lesson, you're going to be able to solve sometimes equations or something. Um, immediate feedback. So this, this is an interesting one. I think what it's trying to say is just like a feedback loop has to happen. And I guess the point of that is so that you know if you're getting closer to your goal, I suppose, um, or what you need to adjust so that you can reach it. I guess that's what it is. So supposing you're doing your, your particular thing, but you don't ever get any feedback on it, which now I'm thinking about it is probably why online courses don't do that well, because you have all the knowledge and stuff there but you don't have much interaction with a tutor or facilitator. And so you don't know if you're doing it well or not, and it becomes frustrating. Yeah, and I think that feedback, I mean, the evidence shows that feedback is one of the most important things in teaching, isn't it? Very much so. Um, can I just press you on, on these goals a little bit? Mm. I mean, what, what, is, is there anything about the nature of these goals? Do they have to be... Um, should they be intrinsic goals? Should it be something that a student really wants to do for themselves? Or could they be extrinsic goals? And if they could be kind of extrinsic goals, let's say getting an A in, in GCC maths, for example, um, is, is, that not, is, is there not some danger there that, that we lose something from education? Yeah, it's an interesting one. So one of the other conditions that I think links to your question is a degree of control over your actions. And I think that ties into, I think it's difficult in teaching because sometimes you do have to set external, you know, um, extrinsic motivation. But I think the best teachers and what I've seen is the best teachers start off with that somehow, sometimes, but then they start to weave it into something that the children, as the pupils, students, whatever, actually want to do. And that taps into what they really, you know, they suddenly want to become better at this particular thing because maybe what you're saying before, like relationships and so on. Um, or untapping something, but yeah, the goal, um, a degree of control over the actions is really, really important. So it might be that you have a fairly standard lesson, but it might be that you say you can choose any 10 questions, for example. So you can still build it in, even if it's not going all out crazy with it. Um, or it might be, you know, you can, you can start here, here or here. That's quite a common thing that I do sometimes where the topic's not that exciting, but it's kind of, if you think you're at this level, start here. If you think you're at that level, do that. Um, if you think you should miss any outcome and talk to me about it. So there's something in there that they can choose. So still giving students some kind of ownership over yeah. the process. Sometimes the bigger goals that we as adults think are important are not important to your average 12-year-old or to your average 6-year-old, you know. So do you think flow is more important when you're teaching older students? I think flow is important at all times um, because that's probably what will start to build the love of learning. Um, and I think if you... If you understand it as a teacher, then you can engineer the types of tasks that will get students into that state. Um, and also, you know, I'm thinking about it as somebody who's managed people as well. If you can think about it as somebody who manages people or is a leader, you can also put enough tasks in or experiences for people that help to build that. And that builds a, a sense of fulfilment in work and a sense of fulfilment in learning in the classroom. So... Flow is equally important for older and younger students and indeed adults. The difference is 
how you get there. Is that what you're saying? I think so. It might be how you apply it. So I might interpret it in a particular way to do with my particular style of interacting with people. Um, somebody else might interpret it in a different way, but the point being, it almost doesn't matter how it's interpreted. It could be the activity itself can be almost anything. Um, you know, he talks about how you can watch somebody maybe walking along a wall, for example, and they could make that a flow activity because they're trying to stay on it the whole time, or they might go onto a higher wall, or they might do it in a faster time. Like you can set yourself your own little goals to make something more challenging um, that you need to do. And uh, ultimately, he talks about how you can make life a whole flow state. That's the aim, that to get overall life as a flow state, a continuous series of flow activities and experiences. I mean, that's interesting, applying it to the whole of life. Just my one last question. Um, when I left as a teacher, um, so I, maybe a bit like you, have, have kind of had a few changes in life, maybe looking for, for flow. Um, but when I left my last school, uh, one of the students um, kind of wrote me a little card with a, with a quote from George Orwell on, um, which I thought was kind of relevant to this conversation. Mm. Um, so his quote was, men can only be happy when they do not assume the object of life is happiness. Now, flow is all about achieving happiness. Apparently, do you think actually flow is about a little bit more? Yeah, it's interesting. So the subtitle of the book, I think, is like, I can't, I'm not looking at it now, but something like The Pursuit of Happiness or something. But the interesting thing, actually, is that it's, when you read it, it's not really about that. Um, it, okay, so the other thing that I found really interesting is... It talks about how activities that you kind of start out thinking that they're going to make you happy are not the ones that uh, kind of garner the best flow states. Enjoyable activities are not necessarily flow activities. Um, so, and the reason is because they often lack challenge. And I think for me, that was really interesting as to why it is that sometimes in teaching, especially when you first get into teaching, um, people want to give these like free lessons because they think it's fun <laughs> or they do fun lessons and they end up being the worst. Like, I've had disastrous lessons like that where you thought, oh, I'm going to do this really fun thing, kids are going to love it, da-da-da, worst. And when I look at it now and kind of dissect it through the lens of flow, it's because several of the things for flow were missing. They lacked challenge, there wasn't a clear point to it, um, and then in that case, so many kids then drop out. If it's not something that you're naturally into, the other ones drop out of it, which is why a free lesson is always a bad idea. Um, and although they think they might want to sit down and watch a DVD uh, rather than do whatever it is at the end of the lesson, end of term, the number of kind of behaviour incidents and that kind of thing that happens in those lessons is skyrockets because the certain conditions are missing. So to answer your question, I don't think... To pursue happiness will not end in happiness. It's a bit of a philosophical debate. To pursue a meaningful life or a fulfilling life, that can yeah, and it's maybe a deeper sense of happiness, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And I think it ties in nicely to, to the, the intellectual virtues we were talking about before. But it's something that goes a little bit beyond, um, I guess, sometimes what we consider just in, in, in an everyday teaching situation. I think so. I think in general, uh, happiness or... It's interesting because uh, at the moment there's also quite a thing in education about character. Happiness and, and other things that are really interesting byproducts of education... If you do other things right, they come. But if you focus on it, it's almost like you can't attain it. it um, like last year I went to an exhibition, it was like a Stanley Kubrick exhibition in Somerset House. And there was one thing where you could look at his portrait, but if you looked head on, you couldn't see it. 
you had to look slightly to the side. And then when you look slightly to the side, you saw it out of the corner of your eye. And I think kind of intangible things like happiness or even character or virtue are things that you get as a byproduct of other things. Yeah, and it, they almost happen unconsciously. Well, we've had quite, a lot, of, quite a lot of discussion <laughs> from Monday morning I know. in Dalston. <laughs> Consciousness. Better go and do Mind. some work. Yeah. Well, that it's was been great. a pleasure. Yeah, Thank really you. enjoyed that. Thanks, George. Hey, people. I love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Press the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. Two, share. Share this episode with somebody who you know will find it interesting or is affected by the specific issues covered. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also feel free to contact us via the links on the show notes. Thanks a lot. Bye.